0: I'm going to be talking about whether climate change could make Earth uninhabitable for humans. So we already know that climate change is causing, in the ballpark of hundreds of thousands of premature deaths. This is likely to increase to uh, hundreds, up to hundreds of millions, over the coming decades. Climate change is already having substantial uh, impacts uh, on a, a wide range of areas, from uh, Arctic sea ice melt to flooding uh, and other areas. We have a sound economic case for addressing climate change, and it is addressing it is harming the poorest the most, and yet these are the people that have least contributed to climate change, creating a climate justice issue. And so overall, as we look at the picture, it doesn't look good, but I'm talking here only about the median case scenario. And yet as a long-termist interested in existential risk, I want to use this talk to address the tail risk issues um, on climate change. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about um, for the rest of... For the rest of this talk, looking at how climate change contributes to existential risk. So let's start by defining existential risk. It means human extinction or the permanent and drastic curtailment of humanity's long-term potential. So how might climate change contribute to existential risk? As I see it, there are sort of three main ways. Uh, there's a bunch of ways that you can slice the cake here, but I found this framework useful as I think about this issue. So one is by making Earth uninhabitable for humans. One is by increasing uh, the risk of other existential risks. And finally, by contributing to the chances of societal collapse. And that's something I'll I'll address briefly in a moment. Now, if I had to guess, I would guess that these second two risks here, the... uh, Contribution to other existential risks and to societal collapse are probably the larger of the two, um, but they're also less tractable to study. And so, uh, I'm going to do the the thing that academics so often do: of ignore the big important things and address the thing that I know about as a climate physicist. So we're going to be we're going to be setting uh, the, these these second two aside and focusing primarily on this question of making Earth uninhabitable. Except for the next slide, where I want to talk briefly about societal collapse. So what do I mean when I talk about the chance of societal collapse? What I'm talking about here is, uh, is I'm gesturing at something in the vicinity of a complete breakdown of political institutions, a collapse of international trade, and uh, really a sort of breakdown of the fabric of society. To make this really concrete, I'm talking about a reduction in global GDP of uh, more than 80% in less than a decade. And so, uh, this would be, this would be sort of drastic and very dramatic. And yet I have no idea how likely this is to occur. Um, I really have, have no idea, uh, whether society, how much, how likely it is societal collapse would contribute to, uh, existential risk. And I don't know that with or without climate change, but, um, I think this is, in my guess, one of the biggest avenues for climate change to contribute to existential risk. And so I'm excited to see further study of this. Fortunately, the folks at the Cambridge Centre for Existential Risk are starting to think about this. They've got a couple of papers in draft that I've put down at the bottom of these slides um, where they're starting to use a sort of systems perspective to think about some of these questions. But I'm now going to set aside societal collapse and contribution to other risks and focus on the thing that I could actually give a talk on, uh, which is the chances of Earth being made uninhabitable for humans due to climate change. So I want to start by saying this is, this is a really high bar. For Earth to become uninhabitable to humans, that means that humans have to be able to survive nowhere on Earth um, in, in Earth's wide ranging of uh, climates under pretty dramatic warming if we were to see Earth becoming uninhabitable. So this is a really high bar. And I think it's, it's a pretty hard bar to meet. Um, but it's worth saying that this is... Habitability is really a, a function of two things. One is the environment of Earth, and second is the social, technological, and economic factors uh, and tools that we have available to us. And so, um, if I had to sort of like put my finger in the air and guess, I would guess that uh, if humans' e- uh, economic and technological trajectory continues on as it is, it's pretty unlikely that Earth will become uninhabitable. Uh, simply because we have the tools and the technology to survive in such w- such varied climates, which we're uh, on a mission to create habitats on the moon or on Mars, and living in a Earth under drastic climate change is probably going to be a lot easier than that. But if we were to experience some form of drastic and dramatic societal collapse and somehow knock ourselves back to the Stone Age, then I think there's a much more interesting question to be had here of, could you imagine a scenario where under very extreme warming and really extreme climate change, Um, Earth does become uninhabitable to a sort of Stone Age humans and so that's uh, what I'm going to be addressing really for the rest of this talk. So I want to start by looking at some paleoclimate evidence and thinking about uh, what we can say about the habitability of Earth under some historical climates and some historical climate changes. Um, so the first I'm going to talk about the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. This happened about 55 and a half million years ago. Um, we saw warming of about 12 degrees above what we currently see today. And yet we didn't see a mass extinction. We didn't see sort of vast species die off in the way that you would expect to occur if Earth was becoming uninhabitable. Um, now, so this is maybe some evidence that, uh, that Earth dramatically warmed could be uh, habitable to humans. But the rate of warming was really a lot slower than it is today. So it's not a perfect analogy. What about a time with much faster rates of change? Well, uh, about 11,000 years ago, uh, humanity aver- emerged, humans were alive at this point, and humanity emerged out of the end of the recent ice age um, in what's known as the Younger Dryas. And uh, snow and dust accumulation samples tell us that the Earth warmed by about seven degrees in certain parts in less than a decade, and um, humanity also survived that um, although it was moving from a much colder climate to the climate we enjoy today so again, not a perfect analogy, but it's maybe some evidence that that humanity is is able to survive rapid rates of change um, the The final sort of example I want to give in this space is uh, just looking at the range of conditions that humans. Uh, enjoy living in today. Humans thrive in climates as diverse as Bahrain to St. Petersburg, um, climates that vary in average uh, over 16 degrees centigrade. Um, so this is maybe some evidence that even in a warm climate, provided that everything else didn't fall apart around us, uh, we would be able to, to survive in, in a range of different climates, provided that the environment and ecosystems adapted. But again, really not a perfect analogy because these are static conditions as opposed to moving ones. So this is sort of some lines of evidence uh, that, that, we can, that we can bring to play here. But um, my old supervisor during my PhD, we would talk about this question a fair bit. And he would always say uh, that really, in order to address climate change's contribution to X-risk, you need a story you can tell about how, uh, what events occur that get us from now to a point where, um, where Earth is uninhabitable or where humans have gone extinct. And so what I want to do for the rest of this talk is try and sketch out a story like that that, that I find sort of vaguely in the vicinity of plausible um, for how we could get there. I'm not saying this is likely. I'm not saying this is going to happen. I think this is incredibly unlikely. But the challenge I gave myself was like, could I tell a story where we get to a world like that? And so that's what I'm going to do here. So this is we're talking about a, is there a plausible route to uninhabitability? Um, so this is not the first time that this graph has been shown in this conference. I think uh, Goodwin showed it in her talk earlier. Um, but I'm, I want to briefly talk us through this. So uh, along the vertical axis here, you've got the amount of warming that occurs going from zero to five degrees. Um, for For context, two degrees is what the, uh, international climate negotiations are fighting hard to keep us below. Five degrees would be a dramatically and drastically different world from the one that we enjoy today with sort of, uh, mass, uh, mass loss of species, um, potential risks of tipping points, all sorts of things, um, that have been covered elsewhere in the conference, uh, over the course of the last couple of days. Um, and then on this, on this direction here, um, we, this is showing how much carbon humanity is burning. And so the black line, is uh, where we are up to date. So, to date, we have burnt about half a trillion tons of carbon dioxide. And uh, by the year 2100, if we carry on burning CO2 sort of under business as usual scenarios, we'll get up to about two trillion tons of carbon burned. And so, what I wanted to know is that's, that's sort of burning the amount of carbon that we would under business as usual. What if somehow we got really carbon hungry and just wanted to burn a lot of the carbon? Maybe not by the year 2100, but what if we just tried to burn, what if we ended up burning sort of all the plausibly and, sorry, potentially economically viable carbon that is down there? And so to do that, um, we need to zoom out a little bit and uh, continue the axis along here. And uh, this, is, this is the range of the graph that we would be looking at if humanity burned all of the e- potentially economically viable fossil fuel reserves that are down there. And so if you look at this sort of red band coming up here, this is sort of the one you want to be thinking of. And the question is, like, where will this red band go to if we end up burning this much fossil fuels? And, like, the answer is, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of complicated climate science that would go into answering this question. Um, people have made careers out of pointing out that this is roughly a straight line so far, but uh, it's probably not going to be a straight line forever. Um, there's, uh, there's a bunch of factors that are going to go into this. But this is more just to sort of prime your intuitions that burning that much fossil fuels would probably end up in a very bad world. Um, so that's, that's sort of the first pillar of the story that I want to tell. Um, the, the second pillar of this story is uh, looking at cloud based tipping points and asking the question of could there even be cloud based tipping points? So for those of you who uh, are, are interested in the solar system, like I was as a kid, you probably remember that Venus is actually warmer than Mercury, despite the fact that Venus is further away from the Sun. And this is because uh, they ha- Venus had a runaway greenhouse effect on the planet. Now, it happened different there than the way it would happen on Earth, but if it were to happen on Earth, it would go something like this. The, uh, some forcing would heat up the ocean, say, increased carbon emissions or uh, increased energy from the Sun. The oceans would get a little warmer, they would evaporate a bit more, that evaporation would put more water vapor into the atmosphere. Water vapor traps outcoming thermal radiation, outcoming heat, and so that heats up the atmosphere, and that in turn heats up the ocean. And so your cycle continues. The ocean emits uh, more water vapor, and your cycle sort of spins like this. And uh, on Venus, that just kept going, and kept going, and kept going, until I think Venus is about 700 degrees centigrade. Um, on Earth, if this were to occur, in this runaway effect, um, in In a very impossible, worst-case scenario, you can imagine sort of boiling all the oceans or something like this if if the effect didn't stop. Now, people have looked into this and they've said, actually, this isn't really very plausible. You'd need a lot more incoming solar radiation than uh, is ever really going to occur because we know how the Earth orbits the sun, and we know the the range of solar radiation um, that that tends to reach Earth, and we know this is really not going to happen anytime soon. And so I think we can rule out this runaway uh, greenhouse effects. But is there something like this that, that we could happen? And so back when I was studying my PhD, uh, back in sort of finishing in 2013, there wasn't really a story I could tell um, like this. But in 2016, an interesting paper came out by Pop et al., which had a very simple climate model, um, which had this strange effect where cloud feedbacks kicked in and it kicked the temperatures up to stabilizing at about 20 degrees. So you saw this... Basically, this runaway effect that that I've been talking about, and it stabilized about 20 degrees above uh, current temperatures. Now, the model wasn't very plausible. It was incredibly simplistic, and it made enough assumptions that no one really believed it. But it started to get people sort of scratching their heads and wondering, like, is this a thing that could happen? Like, is there a a sort of feasible mechanism here? Fast forward to 2019, and as I was sort of... uh, Reading the literature ahead of writing this talk, I was sort of amazed to find this paper um, by Schnauder, Karl, and Pressel, which is actually kind of a big deal. And um, it's, uh, again, using an incredibly simple model, a, a column model of the atmosphere. Um, and what happens in this model is they triple carbon dioxide concentrations, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And what they find is that the, uh, the cloud layer, the stratocumulus cloud layer in the tropics that sort of looks a lot like this, that cloud layer will burn away. Now, clouds have this lovely, white, fluffy property that makes them really f- reflective to incoming sunlight. and So that stops the Earth warming too much. But when the clouds disappear, the dark ocean underneath, it absorbs a lot of sunlight. And that, in turn, heats up the ocean. And you remember our story before about heating up the ocean, water into the atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. And so what happens in, this, in, uh, in the Schneider simple uh, model is that you see eight extra degrees of warming on top of the tripling of CO2 concentrations that, that happened simply from from what they did in the model, and so uh, this one again had a had a mixed reception from scientists. some people were like, hmm that 's really interesting. other people were like no it 's a simple column model it 's not going to apply globally um, we shouldn't we shouldn't kid ourselves enough about this, but I think it is fair to say that it is probably like at least now we have a physically plausible mechanism here, something worth investigating further and so um uh if we take this simple model and uh, sort of put it in different places on the planet, you're going to see this feedback effect kicking in at different times. And so you're you're not going to see a sort of rapid jump in the way that you do here, but you might end up seeing um, an increase in the rate of warming that we get for each ton of carbon dioxide emitted. Um, or in climate parlance, you might see the climate sensitivity increasing at higher temperatures. And uh, the latest models that are going into the IPCC report, uh, the, the sixth one that's coming out in sort of 2021, they do start to see some of this effect where at higher temperatures, you see more warming per um, per unit of carbon dioxide concentrations than you do in uh, at lower carbon dioxide concentrations. So this sort of makes us think, we don't really know how big a deal this is. We don't really know if this is going to be a big deal or a small deal. But at least there's some evidence here that like, Maybe this is a thing we should be worrying about, and so what I've been doing here is sort of scratching my head and asking myself, can I tell a plausible story about how Earth becomes uninhabitable due to climate change? And uh, I, I think these are the sort of main two pillars that I'm that I'm looking at here, and then how does that lead to uninhabitability? Well. Uh, Mainly, I'm going to ask you to sort of use your imaginations in a world with sort of 20, 30 degrees of warming. But these are sort of some of the things that would be kicking in. Um, I gave a longer version of this talk where I go into the details on some of this, which we don't have time for now, but maybe we can do in some of the Q&A. Um, and so, so really, uh, to, to sort of sum up here, we've asked this question of how might climate change contribute to the probability of existential risk. And I highlighted these three things, un- the chances of making Earth uninhabitable, the contribution to other existential risks, and this chance of societal collapse. And uh, I sort of ruled out these other two because they weren't really things I know about, even though they're probably the the bigger terms going on here, and focused in on the uninhabitability piece. And then we saw uh, what it would look like to burn a lot of the fossil fuels and how that could end up in a really warm climate. And then we hypothesized and sort of spitballed about cloud-based tipping points and how maybe that's a thing that we should pay attention to. Maybe. I don't know. and this things all together, sort of giving the, the gestures in the direction of a story of how Earth might become uninhabitable. So, as you can tell, this was a, a pretty shaky line of argument, a pretty sort of shaky line of evidence. But uh, for me, at least, it gestures in the direction of like this is deserving of further study. And I'd love people to go away and think about each of these different each of these different parts: the uninhabitability piece, the contribution to other extras piece, and the societal collapse piece, and sort of maybe investigate some of these uncertainties with a particular focus to thinking about the chances of climate change really making, um, contributing to humanity going extinct altogether. So thank you all for sort of making it through this later late on a Sunday afternoon, and I'll now open this up to Q&A. Thanks.
1: So I wanted to maybe just start with kind of the epistemic status of climate science in general, and I think this is an audience where there is a tremendous amount of rigor on some topics. You know, in the, in the session before this, we looked at you know simple questions as seemingly tractable as if you give people more money will they be better off and the answer is yes but it's a lot harder to prove that than you might think and then on the far end of the spectrum you've got questions like do insects suffer and if so you know what might we be able to do about it if anything so climate science is probably somewhere in the middle but it seems to be sort of hotly debated and i i find that this is a an area where it's kind of hard to get clarity as an outsider on just how solid all of this science is, so maybe you could give us your perspective
0: on on all of that. Yeah, I would love to. So, what do we know? We know for certain that the world is warming, and we have like really clear lines of evidence to that, that is happening. And uh, we know for certain that carbon dioxide concentrations um, are going up, and we have sort of very plausible, uh, sorry, very. There's a lot of consensus on the physical mechanisms to how those carbon dioxide concentrations. Uh, would lead to warmer temperatures. And so, uh, I think like 97% of scientists agree that, uh, climate change is, uh, is most likely caused by humans and uh, is contributing to that. And that is talking about how much, uh, how much is sort of the overall trend of the world warming, uh, and, and climate change and humans contribution to that. Now, when we zoom out and talk about climate change's contribution to existential risk, Now we're just in sort of pure fantasy speculation land. Like, this talk isn't, isn't really a talk about rigorous science. This is a talk about Neil standing up on stage and spitballing for half an hour. Um, and so, uh, this, this talk isn't really supposed to try to convince you of anything. This is more of a prompt to encourage people to go and, and work on this question more and, uh, and study it a bit more and sort of try and pin down some of these answers. Because I think, Apart from maybe my first slide, everything I've said today is like largely speculation, um, but it's, it's speculation trying to get at this question of, of uh, where might this chance of extinction lie, which is so important from a long-termist perspective. And if we come at this problem from this long-termist perspective of trying to figure out where the extinction risk lies, um, then I think there are a bunch of really interesting questions to ask that I'd love to see the broader community addressing.
1: Yeah, Okay. Um, Sticking with more mainline questions just for a second, it seems like some of your earlier comments toward the beginning of the talk seem to suggest that your outlook would be humanity will be pretty adaptable, and yes, there will be costs to climate change, but in the absence of, as you put it, a story where kind of other things happen as knock-on effects, the kind of mainline expectation is not so bad. Is that a fair reading of your
0: yeah. I, of your view? Uh, it, it depends on what you mean by not so bad. Um, if we mean like, I, I expect sort of, uh, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people to die prematurely because of climate change. But, um, uh, and that's, that's really bad. Um, it's similar sort of vague scales of badness as things like the number of people that die in traffic accidents or, or something like that, like in, in some short period of time, when you look at climate change overall over many decades um, and uh and so it it's it's very much a big problem um, and then the question for me from a long termist perspective is like where does it rank relative to the other existential risks and so if i was if I had to guess, I would guess that it's maybe like lower down on on the list of things likely to contribute the most to existential risk than say AI or bio risk or sort of um I'd put it more among the cluster of things like nuclear weapons, geoengineering, climate change, things like that. Um, but, uh, and, and so for me, that's still very much a thing deserving of attention and sort of worth working on. And whether it's really bad depends a lot on your definition of really bad.
1: Yeah. So not to be, uh, you know, again, too anchored to kind of the mainstream questions, but do you feel that it is, time now to be kind of mobilizing and transforming the economy or do you feel like the jury is still out on that and we we don't really have the mechanism for kind of the the plausible story of the really bad outcomes that would demand that
0: of us at this stage oh for sure i i think we should be cutting carbon emissions much much more dramatically than we are right now i think we should be going to net zero emissions i think there's like a very uh a a relatively solid economic case that this is a good idea and it's positive return on investment. Um, I, my guess is that we should be uh, keeping the total amount of carbon that humanity emits to less than a trillion tons, which would hopefully keep us at low, less than about two degrees of warming. And that's and, double of what has happened in all of history. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we've got we we can we can emit in the future about everything that we've emitted in the past, and that means making pretty dramatic and uh, quick cuts to humanity. That carbon. would happen in the next. 50 years, business Uh, as usual? Yeah, or less. Um, Yeah, we need to start cutting carbon emissions sort of in the next few years.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Let me look at the app here for uh, a quick second. Um, While I do that, is there a story about methane uh, deposit release that would crack your your set of possible narratives here? Because that's one, I don't know a ton about it, but it's supposed to be the most powerful greenhouse gas. There's a lot
0: of it, like sitting at the ocean floor and in the tundra. Yeah, methane clathrates. Um, this is one of the things that I, uh, that, that I've sort of always been a little worried about. Um, the thing about methane clathrates is that they are very slow to bubble up. Um, so on sort of most of the plausible, uh, scenarios that we see, unless you go into sort of the sorts of crazy scenarios that I was talking about, on those mostly plausible scenarios, you end up with, uh, seeing methane clathrates not emerging for, uh, something like, uh, hundreds or maybe even a thousand years um, after you see your initial warming. And this is just because they're very slow to release. And that's in the sort of like most likely most likely scenario. If if we got the climate science wrong or if the bottom of the ocean heated up way faster than we expected, then um, then you could see that happening fast. But the ocean doesn't really turn much in the vertical direction. Almost all the movement in the ocean is horizontal. And so this just makes it very hard for heat to propagate downwards. And that means it's going to be sort of it's going to take a little while for those methane clathrates to heat up.
1: Gotcha. Okay, cool. That's very interesting. Um, so you've covered this one a little bit. How important is it for people to work on this? I think your suggestion would be that exploring the corner cases or the far-out cases is really where the highest value work is to be done.
0: That would be my guess, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see people exploring societal collapse, like the folks at Cambridge are doing, and sort of looking at some of these uh, tell tell scenarios um, like these worst case scenarios and, and looking at the feasibility of that stuff. Um, and also geoengineering is like a giant question mark in my head, uh, which I don't, yeah, I don't really understand how that interacts with existential risk, but my guess is people should figure that out too. Uh, so we've got a
1: question about, and you may want to punt this to a longer talk because uh, we don't have a ton of time, but how does this 20 degree warming translate to true uninhabitability?
0: Yeah, um, 20 degrees or, or maybe even more um, ending up uh, in those sorts of scenarios. Yeah, and so this part, uh, I don't really know. Um, I would, again, just be sort of spitballing here. But um, when you look at, for example, agricultural y- yields, um, they sort of start dropping off a cliff at some point. Um, and then if we move agricultural zones up into the poles, um, you end up with very different growing seasons than the ones that they are evolved for we don't really have a like a great sense of how that would work um uh we the most likely story you would need to tell is something involving societal collapse and something involving the the breakdown of sort of a broader society and that having a bunch of other bad knock-on effects
1: gotcha okay um how have your views changed about all of this over time
0: yeah so my my guess is that My views on climate change have stayed like relatively stable over time. And, uh, my views on the importance of like me working on AI have gone up. And so, uh, like for me, climate change is just as important as when I worked on it as my full-time job. Um, and now that there's like a ton of folks flooding into AI policy and AI safety and things like that, like my guess is it's time for EAs to revisit sort of working on climate change and tail risks and, uh, nuclear weapons and geoengineering and some of these other problems in this space.
1: I think this will probably be the last one because we are already a minute over, but options that we have to address carbon immediately would include obviously a carbon tax, carbon capture, maybe some others you'd want to list. Um, how do you think about kind of a, a carbon tax, a more kind of conventional method versus carbon capture, which might fall under geoengineering, I guess, depending on uh, on the strategy. What do you think we should be pursuing first there to reduce
0: carbon? Yes. on On the immediate question of Carbon tax versus carbon capture. Carbon captures are like unproven, very expensive technology. And carbon tax is a very proven but politically infeasible, uh, like somewhat politically infeasible mechanism. I'd be way more excited about a carbon tax. A carbon tax of the right size, if implemented across the world, I think could go a really long way to helping uh, solve climate change. Um, and I think it's it may well be easier to... I, I don't know about the political feasibility of this, but if it were implemented, it would it would do a lot of good. Carbon capture, I think, is is going to be very expensive and is uh, a long way off, but it's hopefully part of the solution in the future.
1: Awesome. Well, this has been a fascinating half an hour. How about a round of applause for Neil Bowerman? Thank you.